Hello, and welcome to Kingwood United Methodist Church. Thank you for joining us today. Wherever you're listening from, and whatever service you're listening to, we strongly believe because of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, there is always more to life. Pray together, church. God, in our humanness, there are times when we are limited in what we are able to see. In our humanness, there are often times that we are unable to let go of the things which create physical and emotional scars in our lives. So as we, your people, gather in this day to remember, may we remember not only the events of 20 years ago, but all those events in which the brokenness of humanity has been demonstrated and the beauty of your creation when all is stripped away, shines forth. When heroes step forward through ashes and brokenness in the line of fire or in times of vulnerability. When people who seemingly have very few capabilities to change the world are able to change the world of their neighbor. Thank you for being present with us, O oh God. And in this time now, as we move into the hearing of your scripture, would you help us hear with joy what you would say to us today? But where the scripture is an irritant to our comfort and our complacency, would you allow us to receive your correction, guidance, and grace? Thank you, God for always being with us, even when we can't seem to experience it or know it. You are the God who is always there. This we pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And all of God's people said, Amen. We're in the midst of this sermon series as we transition from a time of remembrance as a time of thinking about what we are going to become and this image, remembering specifically, we picked up because not all of life is like an episode of Leave it to Beaver. We often live with this sense of mask of trying to project that there's a sense of perfectness in our world and everything is all beautiful. And this series has been set to remind us within our Methodist and Wesleyan heritage of what John Wesley said when he invited us to move on to perfection. Do we expect to be made perfect in this life? Now, if we pick up the word perfect in the world's vernacular today, we can often get a misplaced understanding where we have to have everything together and everything is right. When the Hebraic and the Greek and the New Testament, the understanding of perfection really is that sense of, of wholeness, of completeness, as Matthew says to us in the fifth chapter, be therefore perfect as children of a perfect heavenly father. And so we're looking to say, how can we make our life whole? And when we seek to make life whole, how do we understand the tension that exists between what God desires to make our life whole and complete and the messages of this world, which are superficial, like wrappings on the outside that say, well, everything's fine. Did you notice that everybody's smiling in that picture? Now, I don't know about you, but one of the first things that struck with this graphic when we were looking at this series is, can you go back to when you get a family picture together as a group? Do you have that person in your family that's like, okay, move this way. It's just got to be perfect. I mean, my dad used to have the old 35 millimeter, right? 
And then you got the ladder out and you had the little timer. And then, you know, that was before you could see the picture that you took. And since we didn't know if we were all smiling, we had to take picture after picture after picture because mom said, I want to make sure everybody's eyes are and everybody is smiling. Yes. Everybody say, cheese. And despite some of the common vernacular, even as close as in the Houston area from pulpits about your best new life is just waiting for you, my experience is that the best thing in life is that God is with me. Even when the pieces are crumbling and I can't understand, God is with me. And that's what makes a difference. So today we want to look at the contrast. Remember last week, Clint was talking about the contrast of the good soil, the soil of your heart. And I don't know if you looked or not, but go on Facebook if you're not his friend. He's actually started a whole new planting project with good soil so he doesn't grow weeds. I was so proud of him. Today we want to look at the contrast as we move to be made whole, pursuing this perfection in life as a Christian, not to be outwardly perfect and never make a mistake, not that we have everything figured out, not that everything is wonderful, but to sense to create space and capacity within our heart for God to move, to make us whole, even if for a brief moment, to be fully whole in the presence of God. And we want to look at the contrast between the agendas of this world displayed in the Pharisees in this bitter sense of accusation and the gentleness of Jesus. Now, every text has a context. So when you find that there's text that you read, you have difficulty, it's always good to read a little bit before and a little bit after and find out what is the context of what's happening. So it's extremely important within this text to recognize that as you wrap up John chapter 7, you basically have the Pharisees accusing Jesus because the guards won't arrest him, and there's all this accusation that's happening. And there's this guy named Nicodemus. You remember Nick from John 3? You know, the same Nicodemus who comes to Jesus in the dark of the night, and he makes an appeal based on the, judicial, the, the, the Jewish law. Now, look, we've got no accusation against the guy. He's basically defending Jesus. And they all say, yeah, but he's from Galilee. Have you ever seen anything good come from Galilee? It's exactly what people from Texas think about Arkansas, and people from Arkansas think about Texas, especially today. So there you go, Nancy Foisner. That's as close as I can get. That's as close as I can get. But there is this human irritation and rub. Interject into this. Jesus. Now, before you even get into the text you got to listen to the little movements of the text. There's this beautiful part of the text that at the very end of John chapter 7, it says, they all replied, are you from Galilee, Nicodemus too? Do you look into it? You'll find out that no prophet comes out of Galilee. And then the 53rd verse, the last verse of John chapter 7 says this, then they all went home. So when we open up a text in a minute, it's going to be this odd thing because we enter the text in a time of transition. They all went home. And now if you'll stand in respect to God's holy word, we're going to pick up the text. John chapter 8, verse 1. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people were gathering around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, 
Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The Greek says the very act of adultery. In, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? And they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing Jesus. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. This is the word of God for you and me, the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. God, open our hearts and minds by the presence of your Holy Spirit. Transform my words to be your words. So that as we leave this place, we will be the hands, the heart, and the voice of Christ. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, do we offer this prayer. And all of God's people did say, Amen. Our human tendency, if we're really honest, when it comes to matters of faith and even maybe not so many gracious matters, as Jim described from a line in a CVS Walgreens and in the parking lot of Kroger, and if you see Jim drive, you may know why some people do stop and talk to him later. <laughs> That's a sermon for another time. Got you, brother. Got you. Uh, his is the black VW. It's got scrapes on the right forefront and the back forefront. And it was just, it's good. But, but our, our human tendencies, we project upon others our own insecurities, our unresolved conflicts, our biases and perspectives. And the best way to illustrate this for you is Houston traffic. It's the easiest way. Because when you're having a bad kind of morning, you're going to give no grace to anybody who cuts you off, isn't driving fast enough, Maybe you're the person who scorns the person that drives 23 through the school zone because they're going too fast. And maybe you're the one because you're in a hurry, they're going too slow. And usually based on what's happening in the stirring of your life is how you look and project. And what happens is we find the faults of others to become stepping stones for our own self-righteousness. We are so good at criticizing others. I simply lay before you one example without a specific thing to simply say, have you ever heard of a media outlet affirming another media outlet in our world today as it relates to politics? Our politics has eroded to nothing but sort of accusations. We've lost that ability. In fact, we oftentimes baptize behaviors in ourselves that we find reprehensible in others. We curse at the person who didn't put on a blinker so we could pull across the median and get out 20 seconds faster, but we never give a second thought that we don't use our blinker. This simple illustration of traffic in our driving behaviors actually seeps into every aspect of our daily life. 
Because when we come to a place where we have this unresolved tension within our own lives, we have a tendency to pick apart the behaviors of everybody else. But we're not so comfortable standing in front of the mirror. The way John unfolds the narrative before us, there is this clear tension between accusations and the gentleness of Jesus. There's this clear contrast that happens between the woman who stands alone. And by the way, the text says she was caught in the very act of adultery. Now, I don't know, um, cover your children's ears, but that's a, um, that's a, that, that requires two people. And so if you listen to the text and read it carefully, if you've got your Bible with you, uh, look at the word bent down. If you've got the RSV, it'll say stooped. You see, when, when Jesus comes into places where the world is accusing, he'll stoop down on the level to where those who are being accused will be to proclaim, this is my space, and I stoop to where you are. But he straightens up when he confronts. And so you'll see that twice in the text. It's really fascinating. You see in the text that it actually says that they were trying to trap Jesus. I mean, the text tells us clearly they did this because they were trying to trap Jesus. And as good Methodist biblical scholars, I know you're familiar with Levitical law in chapter 20, verse 10, which requires the man and the woman to be both subject to the same penalty if they are caught in adultery together. And the text tells us clearly she was caught in the very act, but she alone is the one who stands there and accused by the men. You see, this is a clear representation in a particular person's life of what we happen to be as a culture today. Oh, we're so quick to gather the stones, aren't we? When something rubs us the wrong way or challenges us, whether it be from a faith perspective or a political aspect, we tend to gather the stones quickly. You see, if we only have grace and no judgment, faith becomes nothing more than something sentimental. And if we only have judgment, we have no grace, then faith becomes nothing but condemnation. But when grace and judgment are held in tension together in this holy tension, each defines the others. This is where we live in faith. You see, this text is not about forgiveness. Now, you can be upset with me all you want, but I just invite you to read the text carefully. How often have you heard that particular text in this moment where Jesus forgives the woman and then she says, go and leave your life a sinner, go and sin no more. And we just sort of absorb this forgiveness concept, which is a tenet of the faith, and we sort of slide it into John chapter 8. It's not in the text. There is no seeking of forgiveness by the woman. There is no forgiveness offered by Jesus. This is about purely how do we deal with the faults that we have ourselves and the faults of others around us. And our human tendency is that we pick apart and find the faults of those around us with far greater efficiency and repeatability than we do finding our own faults. Thanks again for joining us for today's message. We will return to the sermon in a moment, but first, we would like to ask for you to rate, share, and subscribe to our podcast. We believe God is doing some amazing things here at KUMC, and your feedback helps our church to reach new listeners that we wouldn't otherwise be able to reach. Now, let's get back to the work.
Jesus actually doesn't even forgive the accuser. He simply asks a question. Now we're going to get, I'm going to be stepping on your toes in a few minutes, but I'm going to be aiming at your heart. So uh, it is, remember the imagery, I'm going to blame Clint. That's always a good thing to do. Blame another preacher, blame Jim, blame Clint, right? Clint's metaphor last week was fantastic for us that scripture at times can be like that grit of sandpaper, right? There's a bit of a rub against it, right? And if, if, if Scripture doesn't have a rub to it, if it doesn't have a sharp edge to it, if it doesn't have a, an edge that requires us to do something transformative with our life, then what we're doing here is just silliness and nonsense. Because this is not a social gathering alone. This is not a PTA meeting. This is meant to be the time that we encounter the living God where Scripture says, where does your life need to be transformed into Christ-likeness? And where are those places that you need to let the Scriptures read your life as much as you read the scripture. So an illustration of how we sometimes let these things happen is, what was Jesus writing when he bent down? I will tell you, the answer to all that I'm about to tell you is nobody knows. Nobody knows what he was writing. But as I have done the research and what we do as pastors is we'll read commentaries, we'll read Topical commentaries, we'll read word studies, we'll find out what is this word meant in the Aramaic, what does it mean in Greek, if it's Old Testament, what does it mean in Hebrew, we'll sort of dig below. But sometimes the text just gives you what you need to work with. So it was, it was in the morning, right? What time of day? Do you remember what the text said about when, they, when Jesus returned to the temple courts? It was dawn. He returns to the temple courts. Now, when you go to the Holy Land today, some people, I have to laugh when I overhear them saying as tour guides or pastors, Jesus stood exactly right here. You don't know that. In fact, I even heard one vendor say, no, no, this is not fake. This is a genuine replica of the real thing. (laughs) Now, the world will offer us genuine replicas of the real thing time and time and time again. But when we read the text carefully, it's dawn, the sun is rising, and the text tells us that Jesus is in the temple courts. You can visit the temple courts. You can even say maybe this extended to the teaching steps. But my friends, you visit there today. It is one place that Jesus was in this general area, and nothing has changed substantially because these thousands and tons of thousands of stones remain in place. But one person in the commentary said, oh yeah, you know what Jesus was doing is he was writing in the sand the names of the people or he was writing in the sand. It's a problem. There's an assumption here. Writing in the sand sounds really good. There's only one real problem that you find unless you read the text faithfully. He was in the temple courts. The temple courts were weathered limestone. Unless Jesus brought his own Play-Doh or play sand, there was no dirt to write in. And the text says he wrote on the ground. Nobody knows what he was doing tracing his fingers. Nobody knows. It's a mystery of the text. What we know is that in that moment when people gathered stones and were ready to hurl and accuse, Jesus, the King James says, stooped low. The NIV is bent down. The point is, Jesus got down. And whatever he did, it changed the focus from accusing half of a party caught in in something that was to be punished to the fingertips 
I mean, here you want to go down a rabbit hole of mystery and what ifs? What if Jesus wasn't doing anything but just doodling and he knew what he was doing and the, all of the accusers said, what's he writing? Gary, Gary, what's he writing? Gary, I think he's writing your name, Gary. And, oh, 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 I know, Nick, he's writing Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10. We don't know. We know that his action changed the focus. Where has the action of Christ changed your focus and how you're dealing with your anger, with your frustration? And what part of your life has too much real estate been inhabited by hurt and anger and frustration? My friends, when you let the capacity of your heart be filled with those things that are simply resentments and anger and hurt, it is so difficult to create space for God to help make you whole, to receive, to be transformed. Where does Christ need you to help change your focus? Now, I'm not going to pretend that reconciling human relationships is easy. That simply, oh, by the way, you've heard this sermon. We're going to pray. We've got a cute little hymn we're going to sing at the end. And now the world is all better. No, you're still going to go have to have family dinners past COVID. And there are still your favorite time of that probably is going to be the tail lights of some family members that you see leaving your house. All right. There's still going to be that one person in the family that always comes in to stir everything up. There's all, that's all going to be there. Right? It's beyond your control. What can you control? You can control what's within your reach, your capacity, and the real estate within your heart, life, and soul. And you either borrow the messages of this world that are just simply false mask, or you be authentic and say, God, this is where I am, and this is what I need your help with. What's really amazing about the way in which Jesus bent down, the word in the Greek, it's only used one other time in the New Testament. It's the same word used in Mark chapter 1 when John the Baptist sees Jesus coming. And what he says is, I'm not so worthy as so much as to stoop down or to bend down and untie Jesus' sandals. Think of that contrast. One who thinks that the righteousness and the holiness and the presence of God's love is so beautiful, I'm not even worthy to stoop down. And yet we have the one who embodies it in Jesus and his first act in the midst of accusations is to bend down, to stoop down. And when he straightens up, he straightens up with a grace-filled confrontation. And it's a question by virtue of a statement. Anyone of you without sin... Any one of you? If you're out there and you've got no sin, uh, you can be the first. I've been in that place in the temple courts. Um, when you speak, it, it, it sort of bounces off all the stone. You know how when you're in the gym or gym space and it's just echoes? And I just envisioned Jesus who was kneeling together. The sun is rising over the temple courts. Maybe it's blinding some people. Uh, he, he simply says, any one of you was the same finger that was doodling on the ground now pointing at the crowd? I don't know how he did it, but I knew in one statement, Jesus turned the accuser back upon themselves and they left. Now, did you read the text carefully? Who left first? 
the oldest. And the oldest tend to be the wisest. Yeah. I, I can hear some old Jewish man going, son, you take on a rabbi. I've been in one of these before. It, it reminds me of being in East Texas, the old joke about the guy in West Texas and someone comes up from the Dallas area and he's hunting quail. Uh, and the joke is there's a quail in Amarillo, but there really was. There were two of them. Um, but I was hunting the quail and the man shot the land that he was on a lease, but the wind carried the quail over across the fence into a, another area where the rancher was coming by and the, the Dallas guy and all of his brand new Cabela stuff that didn't have any dirt on it walked up the fence and he said, hey, old man, you want to give me my bird? The old rancher said, well, young feller, that bird's on my property and uh, I believe that bird belongs to me. He said, you don't know who you're messing with. I got a $7,000 gun here. I'm a lawyer from Dallas. I'll take your land by the end of the day if you don't give me my bird. So the old man said, well, I'll tell you what, young whippersnapper, why don't we settle this the way we do outside of Cotton Center, Texas here? Let's, uh, let's just go to blows for it. How about that? He said, what do you mean by go to blows, old man? He said, tell you what, young feller, you and I are going to stand at this fence. I'm going to be on this side of the barbed wire. You're going to be on that side of the barbed wire. We're going to hit each other as hard as we can in the chin. Last man standing gets the bird. The guy from Dallas says, you're on, old man. I'm going to fold you like a cheap suit. Sets all his fancy gear down. Old man's got his one suspender clipped off his overalls, warming up the arm. Young Dallasite snuggles up to the barbed wire. The old man just throws a haymaker and drops the old guy right there. It takes him five minutes to get up. He staggers back up the fence. He's got blood coming out of his lip. And while he was recovering, the old man went over and got the bird. So when the young Dallasite guy stands up and he says, Your turn, old man, the old rancher said, You can have your bird, feller. <laughs> the old ones are the wise ones. You got to watch out for them. They all left. Wisdom leaves early in times of accusation. Wisdom listens carefully in times of conflict. And then there was nobody. And Jesus says, I don't condemn you. And neither does anybody else. I want to close today with um, the words of Jennifer Marie, a poem written from the perspective of the woman. Her closing paragraph and lines are this. It says, from the perspective of the woman, I bowed my head slightly as fingers trembled over new prune-colored bruises, my ribs, my stomach. I unlocked my knees and lifted my chin, and I met his eyes as in Jesus. And Jesus, he paused for a moment, he nodded his head slowly, and then he looks up, he says, if you're without sin, please cast the first stone. I bit my lip, I waited and I watched, squinting in the sunrise. The Pharisees grumbled, the townspeople eyed me, but said nothing until they left, one by one. That Jesus, they mumbled, he's always finding loopholes. Let's pray. God, there is a part of each of our lives that we have 
allowed past hurts, mistakes, situations and experiences to have just too much real estate and control us. So would you grant us an awareness that you come not to condemn, that when Jesus spoke the words in John chapter 3, that he came not to condemn the world, but to save the world, that this would be lived out in and through us as we continue to create space in our hearts and lives to be made fully whole by you and your grace and love. Give us the ability to recognize what we need to let go of and where we need to make room for you to enter, you to heal, you to love, you to embrace. I thank you for, for our, your love for us, which never fails. For this we pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And all of God's people did say, Amen. Amen.